1: Welcome to Free State Podcast, everyone. We're very lucky today to have a, a special guest, and I want to set the scene for this guest by saying so first of all saying hi to Joe. Joe is here. And when our when Joe arrived in the studio today, he dropped to his knees in in praise of the guests we have in the studio today. Joe, can you talk talk to us about who we have here today?
2: Well, We've got Peter Taylor, who uh, is vastly respected in my community in the north. Um, we see many of the great injustices that that linger, you know, for decades. Things like Bloody Sunday, Ballymurphy, things because people are treated inhumanely; they're not treated with respect. And when Peter Taylor came to the north of Ireland, a very well-educated Englishman. With a very, very high reputation. It was clear from an early stage that he was not going to toe the propagandistic line, and uh, for that in the north and for his valiant efforts to overcome all sorts of attempts at censorship, etc., we
1: are most grateful. Peter, you're very welcome. It's Lo-
3: Lovely to be here. I'm very, very honoured to be with such a special guest that you
1: have. Um, your book—we're we're, we're going to talk about it. This is going to be a conversation. I can feel already that's going to range across a lot of topics—not just your your career, but the story of the North as as you experienced it. But your your new book operation, Chiffon, uh, is an incredible story in itself. Um, there's so much of it that again goes through the story of the Troubles, but at the heart of it is your search in some ways, for this extraordinary uh, British agent who delivered an incredible message uh, to the IRA uh, with the words, the final solution is union. Ireland will be as one. Now, even today in 2023, to hear that, it seems like an incredible thing for somebody to, to deliver. But you know, you, you became aware of this at at what point and what point did you begin the search for, uh, Robert, who was known to the IRA as Fred?
3: The first thing I should say is that, uh, Robert was actually forbidden to attend that meeting. It came three days after the dreadful atrocity of the bombing in Warrington in which the IRA killed two little boys. Uh, the meeting had been scheduled as a sort of semi-official meeting between the British and uh, and the IRA. But after Warrington, the government, or MI5, said there is no way that this meeting can happen because if it comes out that however covertly we, the British, have been talking face-to-face with the IRA, the ceiling would fall in. So Robert was told he couldn't go to the meeting. Uh, he, he was phoned by Brendan Duddy, who was the intermediary, his contact through to the IRA, and said that he had to come, and come quickly, because, quotes the boys are in town, the boys being Martin McGuinness and, and Jerry Kelly. And Robert said, but I can't, I've been for- forbidden to come. And Brendan, who was beside himself, because so much was resting on, on this meeting, he said, if you don't come, all that we've achieved... Over the past two decades, with Brendan then working with the MI6 officer, Michael Oakley, we'll, we'll, we'll be wasted, we'll just be destroyed. So you've got to come. So Brendan told, so Robert told his boss, uh, John Devrell, who was the head of MI5 in Northern Ireland, uh, I'm going. And Deverell said, you can't go. It's not, not like it's forbidden. He said, I don't care. I'm going. And that's why he went. So he goes to the meeting. And remarkably, first of all, he's given... Uh, the, the fifth degree interrogation by McGuinness, who says, you know, are you MI6, are you MI5? They know him as Fred, because Brendan Duddy told the IRA he was called Fred. So they, they knew him as Fred. They didn't know him as Robert. I only found out his real name, Robert, m- many, many years later. And then McGuinness says, okay, what are the, what are the Brits offering? And that's when he says, incredibly controversially, uh, unionists will have to come to terms with it. History, Europe is moving that way. This island will be as one. He was not authorized to be at the meeting and he was not authorized to say these words. The problem was, if it was a problem, is that he was known to the IRA as being the British government representative. So they believed he was speaking with authority, from the British government. And I went to Belfast a couple of weeks ago to interview Gerry Kelly again, because Gerry Kelly was taking the minutes at the meeting, to say, did you believe him? Because people would say, come on, the IRA are far too sophisticated to take this at face value. To which Kelly said, of course we believed him, because... We knew him as the British government representative, which is what Michael Oatley had been known as for the previous fifty years mm. of the Back Channel. Uh, and I'd also dug out an interview I did with Martin McGuinness in nineteen ninety-four, which is when all this was 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 breaking. And McGuinness told me exactly the same. Of course, we believed him because he was the British government representative. However, it was it was not what he said was not true. It didn't come from the British government.
1: So it was his. It, what weight did it carry? Did it carry weight in terms of moving the process forward, just of itself, or was there any? There was nothing in it beyond his own a view of the how the conflict would resolve.
3: I think the significance of what he of what he said, apart from the fact it wasn't true and he shouldn't have said it, was that. It well, actually, was it was it not true? Uh, no. <laughs> no. If It, it wasn't, seems, if seems it, to be starting to fall into place. If it was
2: I
1: mean, tr- the
3: Unionists believe that the British did sell the boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was true, and I believed it was true, <laughs> I would be the first to say so, right? And my quest to find Robert was driven by the fact that when I first read this in Sinn Féin's account Setting the Record Straight in early 1994 when I read it, I couldn't believe that any British official, be a spook or a minister or whatever, would ever say those words because it clearly wasn't British government policy. So I knew what I had to do was to find this person, whoever he was, and ask him directly and have the answer from his own lips, did you say that, A, and B, was it true? So it took me uh, initially, ten years, and then another 20, 25 years to find him. The first time I, I, I tracked him down, uh, he was in a, a, a courtyard in front of his house, and I told him who I was, and he would, he, you know, he looked shocked, mm. and looked me straight in the eye, and said, I, "I'm not the person you're looking for." And I tried very hard to get him to admit he was. I said, "Yeah, but didn't you know? Didn't you know Derry?" Didn't you know? Colombo's Col- got nothing, <laughs> nothing he, on Peter. Didn't you? Didn't, 20 years. Eh? <laughs> didn't you know? You, you worked with a new Brendan Duddy. He said, Brendan Duddy, never heard of him. And it was pouring with rain.
1: That's the interesting thing. What you actually felt was that if it wasn't him, he would have invited you in out of the rain. That was... A-
3: Absolutely. The, the weather was foul, 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 foul. <laughs> and I'd driven... There was something that bothered me. <laughs> you know, sir, Just you one remember more when, thing. We, when we met in the yard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, And I I'd tried to see him before. I made the long journey to see him. And he wasn't at home. So I left a copy of my provost book with a note in it with my details with a, with a neighbor. And she said she'd give it to him, which she did. And at the end of this conversation that was going absolutely nowhere, I said, oh, by the way, did you get a copy of my book, my provost book? He said, oh, yes, yes, I did. Uh, Come with me. I'll give it back to you. And I thought, oh, you know, he's going to ask me in. And my recollection very clearly is he left me standing on the doorstep in the pouring rain while he went inside to get the book and gave me the book back again. When I subsequently interviewed Brendan, I asked him about that. He said, no, no, no. I wouldn't have left you standing in the rain outside but he did mm. cuz Robert is a gentleman he's old school mm. you know and and that really didn't make sense he insists he, he i he asked me inside but I have no recollection of that one of the reasons he didn't ask me inside is that he had MI5 books on his bookshelf including one by Christopher Andrew who did the f- f- official history of uh, uh, of of MI5 so when I went back to London, deeply depressed because I'd failed, got absolutely nowhere, I thought, hang on a second. If he wasn't Robert, as I found out his name later was, if he wasn't Robert, he would have said, yeah, no, I, 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 I got the book, uh, but it was you know, for the wrong person. But what's all, all this about? Come inside, dry out, have a cup of tea and tell me all about it. That didn't happen. He left me standing on the doorstep. I still insist <laughs> happened mm. um so on the way back to london i thought you know he was the right man that was the giveaway however 20 years later in 2021 i got a letter and i opened it not having a clue who it was from and to my utter astonishment it was from robert and he said you may be surprised to hear from me which is the understatement of the year and basically he said um i've several things have happened and i'm now in a position to fill in any gaps that you may have should you wish to do so and it's happened because three people have died one martin McGuinness, two brendan duddy and three my wife who could not but he didn't say this in the letter but he subsequently told me his wife could not abide him working in northern ireland because she was terrified that one day he simply wouldn't come back because it was a dangerous job and that's how I had. He made contact with me completely out of the blue. There was a phone number at the top of the um, at the, the top of the letter, so I took it as being an invitation to get in touch, which I did. And then subsequently, I went to see him on many occasions, and he agreed to do an interview, not a television interview, just an interview for me, yeah. uh, with a view to writing a book. It, it's, uh,
2: if you don't mind me saying, an extraordinary book, Operation Shefal, and. Uh, we were very privileged to be given an advanced copy and I have to say I was so moved, you know, there were times particularly around the hunger strike that I wept, you know, your story about Brenton Duddy weeping whenever he got yeah. Bobby Sands note to say, look, thanks for everything you tried bro- to He do. broke down, really. But to put some context on Peter and particularly for the younger listeners, um, I, I dug out a piece that you wrote for the Index on Censorship in 1978, where you were clearly extremely concerned with the budding propaganda war um, that was being waged. And, you know, a lot of it was centered around you, I think, because of your dogged refusal to to, to, to quit. And I wanted to just read this short passage from the, the Index to Censorship, which I'm going to get you to the sign this afterwards and then frame it. The official consensus on, on Northern Ireland runs like this. Northern Ireland is a state in conflict because Catholics and Protestants refuse to live together, despite the efforts of successive, well-meaning British governments to encourage them to do so. We, the British, at considerable cost to the exchequer on our shoulders, have done all that is humanly possible to find a political su- solution within the existing structures of the Northern Irish state. Now the two communities must come up with a political solution. They're prepared to work and accept themselves. The terrorists, in particular the Provisional area, are gangsters and thugs. They are the cause, not the symptom, of the problem. And then, later on, you describe your view of what it is. Yet some of us working there as journalists have come to believe that the conflict is political and not religious. That its origins lie in the conquest of Ireland by England and the subsequent establishment of a Protestant colony in Ulster to keep the province secure for the crown, that the immediate conflict stems from the partition of the country fifty years ago, an artificial division designed to be only temporary, engineered by the British to guarantee Protestant supremacy in the remaining six counties of Ulster, that the provisional IRA may lay claim to the mantle of the terrorists who drove the British out of the 26 counties in 1919 and 1920, in a campaign every bit as bloody and unpleasant as the IRA's current offensive to drive the British from the remaining six counties. And lastly, and most sensitive of all, not all of the RUC's policemen are wonderful. And I think that the reason that I read those passages is that, and we're we'll going to talk about the censorship you faced and that propaganda war, but was an illustration of why Peter had credibility and therefore the unrivaled access to my community, to the provost. Like no one else had the access that you had, Peter. I mean, I I spoke this morning on the phone to Raymond McCartney, one of the hunger strikers. (laughs) And I told him I was meeting Peter and he said, please, please pass on my fondest regards. And that's not to say that you're in any way soft on, on the IRA and its horrific campaign. But that it was handled honestly, and I think that that must be the greatest epitaph that any human being can have—that they fought for the truth and that they. So that's the context of of Peter's access and and the book that follows.
1: Talk to us about that, Peter, because Joe touched upon it there. How difficult was it to maintain those contacts? And you made contacts everywhere, like as as this book demonstrates. You know, you 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 know, these, are, and you you understood that to be your. Job to make contacts on all sides, but how difficult was that to do? And you talk, you know, in in the book, you mention even interviewing uh, a prison officer who had, who had made this uh, heartfelt, you know, when 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 the Republican prisoners were looking for, mm. and he actually said he was he totally he totally sympathized with the Republican prisoners' position, and he understood why they wanted that they that they needed those uh, uh, five demands. Yeah. And a couple of weeks late after your interview was broadcast, he was murdered by the IRA. So to pr- maintain it on, on a personal level must have been must have been difficult as well. I
3: mean that was one of the most difficult moments, or the most difficult moment in my fifty years of of covering the conflict when the IRA shot dead Desmond Irvine, the secretary of the yeah. Prison Officers Association, who gave this remarkable interview mm. for a prison officer, let alone the secretary of the POA. And basically said he respected the IRA for what they were doing. This time it was the no-wash, uh, dirty protest. Mm. Uh, an astonishing interview for which you know he was criticized by some in his community, but also was praised by many in his community and other prison officers for being honest about what the situation clearly was as opposed to the way it was presented by the British government in the way that uh, Joe has illustrated from the index on, on censorship piece. And I just felt sick when I heard that the IRA had uh, had shot him dead. And shortly afterwards, I always remember this. I got a phone call from a journalist in Belfast who said, this was at home, he said, how does it feel to have blood on your hands? Uh, and I was taken aback and I I just cut the conversation short. And it was that, the the, the killing of Desmond Irvine, and that phone call from a colleague with that remark, I thought, you know, that's it. Maybe it's time I stop reporting Northern Ireland. It's coming too close to home. You know, he was accusing me Mm. of being responsible for the the death of Desmond Irvine, because I'd interviewed him. Right. And, uh,
2: I remember Alison, Mor- Alison Morris, you know, the journalist of the Belfast Telegraph, who's still a you know, very widely respected journalist. and uh, she, was, she was threatened that her, her fenian cunt throat would be slit. And these are all documented. I don't know if you've read Patrick Anderson's book, Rewriting the Troubles, but I want to come back to the book itself because I know we don't have you for as long as we would want to have you. Six episodes. <laughs> but some of the details are extraordinary. And I encourage anyone who wants to get the, as close to the unvarnished truth about the North to to, to, to read this book, Operation Chief well, it's really extraordinary. I mean, starting with... Sometimes I laughed out loud, you know, um, you document the first peace talks in England in 1972 when the IRA... A group of them were packed into a car and Frank Steele, who's the British government representative, brings them across. And they stopped on their way from the airport to the meeting place because Frank sort of felt that he wanted to, you know, give them a bite to eat and sort of break the silence, etc. And he brought, he handed out a bag of apples and you can take over the story from there. What happened when he handed out the bag of apples?
3: (laughs) I mean, the book is, you know, quite a heavy, serious book, but I have a good read. But there are moments... Of uh, of levity in it, and the description that the MI six officer Frank Steele painted for me, and I hope I managed to paint it in the in the book, was just brilliant and and was um, almost farcical. You know, here here is the IRA leadership being picked up, and first of all, the car breaks down, and they all come back piled into one car, and then they're going to the specially commissioned aircraft to take them into. I had to take them into 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 London, and um, they're stopped by a herd of cows on the road, you know. So, anyway, they're driving to London with uh, w- with Frank Steele, and uh, he thinks they've probably not had, had anything to eat. The RAF not providing a fully cooked breakfast on the flight <laughs> from Aldergrove <laughs> <for poofs. laughs> from 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 Aldergrove to Benson uh, between Oxford and uh, and Henley. So he stops off at a little shop on the corner, and, you know, that's my neck of the woods, and the shop is still there, and got a bag of apples. And he handed the apples to the IRA leadership in the back seat of the car that he was in, and they refused to eat the apples, because they think they're drugged. (laughs) (laughs) But just... um, And then he... Oh, he he he, he, he 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 took a large bite, crunch. He realised, and, and he lived. So then they all they all scrunched <laughs> the apples. But that's the sort of it, the story that sort of stands out. Yeah. But, but it's it's through the book. I mean, I'm, like i'm the,
2: you know, even meeting Martin McGuinness, that, that's all so familiar to me. You know that you 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 Martin McGuinness. He was at the. He was. He was at the back of the chip shop. You met him after Bloody Sunday at the Gasworks. Yeah, yeah. And, and
1: John Hume was the person who pointed him out to you.
3: That's right. He said this was on the just before, just after, just before the funerals of Bloody Sunday, and Bloody Sunday was my introduction. I got there late in the night because that's another long story. Um, but I was watching a torch light torch lit procession wending its way from the bog side up to the cregan where the 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 coffins were lying in state and um, I was talking to John Hume whom I'd met I think the day before and he said if you want to know what's going on here he's the person you should be talking to and he pointed out this young man it was yeah. Martin McGuinness, yeah. and he said he's called Martin McGuinness." And that was the first time I'd heard the words Martin McGuinness. And I subsequently met Mr. McGuinness at the Gasworks. And Barney McFadden's house. Barney Barney, and Rashi McFadden's.
2: That's right. You know what I've, you know, I'm building a house in uh, Mayo. And uh, whenever they were renovating the Gasworks College, which was for the younger listener or probably for the older listener, and unbeknownst for many, many years to anybody, it was the sort of head HQ of, 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 of sort of the IRA in Derry, And uh, okay. Rushing gave my mother two stained glass windows from the house that was being renovated. And so one of them, one of them is going to have pride, pride of place in, my, <laughs> in, in the home that we're building, in Mayo. And the other piece of stained glass, Martin McGuinness called it our house years later. And when he discovered that, my mother gave him the other piece of stained glass. So, uh, but you Precious. met you met him there Precious in the I'll tell you a really great story, but I cannot resist this. Barney McFadden. When Barney died, you see, Barney was Martin McGuinness was a very good Gaelic footballer. His brother Tom McGuinness was one of Derry's greatest ever footballers, and he used to say when he when you met him and you were chatting to him and he was going away, he would say, "I'm away to plant an century device." When we arrived, <laughs> when we arrived at the podcast studio today, you know, I buzzed. And the girl answered and I said, it's too early here. I'm here to plant an incendiary device. And she just buzzed me in. <laughs> no one would know what that is even. But anyway, so at Barney's funeral, uh, Martin did the oration. And he told his story at the very sort of start of the troubles when guns had come up to Derry. He said we'd been out on, a, on a, an operation and it had gone badly and we had to flee. And I ran towards the gas works because I knew I'd get sanctuary there with the McFadden's. And no one knew about it and I went there dead and night. I threw the stone at the window and Barney, Barney was a big Donny man, he was the sacristan at St. Eugene's Cathedral. You know, he was he was all about getting the young people into work. He was a great community. And Barney and a GA fanatic. Barney opens the window in his pajamas, Martin said, and he looks down and uh, who is it? He says it's Martin McGuinness, Mr McFadden. I need your help. Barney said to him, "Indeed, no will not help you. Didn't they get you a trial for the dairy
3: miners, and you didn't turn up?" <laughs> <laughs> so. But it was at, at the gasworks, as yeah. I I call it, that I first met uh, uh, Martin McGuinness, and I was really surprised because you know at that stage this is 1972 when I knew very little, if anything, about the conflict and couldn't understand why the place I was in was had two names, London dairy and Derry. So. I met Martin McGuinness and had this sort of preconception of a sort of an IRA man and he was you know he was charming he was friendly he was helpful we we talked sort of generally and as I've said you know M- Martin has has two faces I said in the, in the program there's the the the, the affable um friendly Martin McGuinness but it can change just like that and the eyes become hard mm. but i i saw the the friendly martin McGinnis that many people who respected all his you know work as uh, 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 uh as uh, deputy first minister saw and he actually said to me and this sticks in my mind he said you know i'd much rather be washing the car at the weekend and mowing the lawn and i felt slightly guilty for actually believing him you know that that and that he was doing what he was doing I, I believe Pony's that I Gilly. believe that yeah. was true. I mean yeah. his
2: later years were spent fishing. Yeah. Watching Derry City soccer, mm-hmm. coming down to watch the Gilly games. He became very friendly with Peter Robinson. And do you not think what always struck me about it, you know, because I had people, you know, obviously Dungiven was a very safe place for Martin to come to. You know, he sheltered in our house amongst others. And what I always felt I mean, my uh Uncle Eunan was in the H blocks was in the dirty protest suffered terribly there you know our our uh, captain Kevin Lynch died on hunger strike and you document that yes, in your book right yeah. Yeah. and so we were very close to all of that but so we knew that these were not demons who were somehow yeah. interested in sex. but that some of them some of our people um and under different circumstances it would never have happened but once this was visited on them People like Martin, for example, just showed a tremendous capacity for violence. You know, some people just were able to do it. They were composed. They were calm through it. You could, I mean, that I think it's such a striking part of your book where John Hume, you know, who is, you know, obviously a, a huge uh, sort of icon in the north when you come to speak to him after Bloody Sunday, he says about this, Martin would have been, what, 21 at that stage mm-hmm. maybe? If you want to know what's going on here. Yeah. This, this he was number guy. two
3: in command of the Derry yeah. Brigade. He was a tough guy.
1: Yeah. Really? Can we t- talk a bit, a little bit about, about Brendan Duddy for people who d- aren't aware of him because he's central to that. He, you know, he, he has a chip shop uh, and you know, it's, and, like, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, isn't it? it's brilliant. And you know, McGinnis is the guy who's yeah. not interested in politics. That's right. Don't stop ch-
3: chatting up the girls, Martin. Get on with the job. Give, give me the beef burger. But right. but but
1: Duddy is an incredible figure. And the, and you know, the thing about this book is, it it all makes sense retrospectively. When we have peace, when we have ceasefire, when we have all the things that we have today. But and it's very easy then to forget that this wasn't the con. N- nobody knew the ending when they were embarking on these things, when Brendan Duddy was setting off on Christmas Day to drive to Rory O'Brady's house in uh, in in Sligo, or uh, Roscommon. Uh, and what? the car was
3: out of petrol. Yeah,
1: was... <laughs> and he has to find someone to, to, to open a petrol station who doesn't... But he's an incredible figure because he seems to be... Uh, Incredibly talkative in his own, like, and you know, he, he could t- 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 had talent in abundance, I think, for talking. You he could talk for Ireland, yeah, <laughs> but yet he never gave gave this no. away. And, like, you mentioned, no. Nell McCafferty was a great friend of his, yeah. couldn't believe it when She'd she had found no idea, it. yeah. It's an extraordinary story, yeah. his story.
2: Well, talkers would have been no good in any of those sorts of... But he was a talker. That was. The thing.
3: But he also is the common denominator that runs right through this story from the early 1970s and the beginning of the back channel in which Brenda was instrumental, way through to the ending of it when he's working with Robert on Operation Chiffon. He never, never, never gives in. He's the common denominator. And... He's a remarkable man, and i got to, i i spent a long uh, a long night's journey into today is how i <laughs> so i think i describe it in, in in the book um so i had to f- you know find out who he was it's a bit like finding finding Robert finding brendan was the first step and um uh, i rang him i i somebody a mutual friend. We were discussing the peace process and stuff. This is just before Good Friday Agreement. And he told me who the contact was. And so I rang him and said, can I speak to Mr. Duddy? Picked up the phone. I said, my name is Peter Taylor, BBC. And I always remember Brendan said, ah, I've been waiting to hear.
2: Stu- what other what other BBC honestly, man would have had that? Uh, I had? Mu- I must pull you up on something. Please do. Uh, you, s- you said that the book was heavy. The book is not in the slightest bit heavy. I think it's so articulate. It's so clearly written. It's it's a, uh, and it, it it flies through. And the the the, the you know again these r- extraordinary details. You know, reminding me of Frank Underwood in House of Cards. You know, eating at Frank's ribs and having his sort of secret meetings there. The, the, in page 57, you you quote Brendan, I began to cook fish and chips, set up a chip shop on the edge of the bog side. I was good at it. And I loved every second of it. I was the best typical dairy understatement and still am. I understand potatoes. <laughs> I, un, I understand chips. We had a little alcove at the back. And you think of this living history being incubated where John Hume, Eamon McCann, the leaders of the civil rights movement would talk until three or four in the morning. There were big, big arguments about the rights and wrongs of various courses of action. Hume was the boss, although everybody argued about what he had to say. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, it was, ai a, mean, Brendan's chip shop uh, was a sort of microcosm of the key players on the nationalist Republican side in, in, in the conflict. And Brendan sort of presided over that, along with Margot, uh, and uh, also with... Um, Bernadette Mount, Bernie Mount, who also played a critical role. She managed his, his chip shop and his dress shops and part of his business. But also, Bernie ran IRA leaders like Seamus Toomey across the border to engage in the secret talks in the 1975 uh, ceasefire. But just just on the book, it's very kind of you to pay that compliment to it. Well, it's true. I'm not. I'm b- not uh, because I, I've not yet had the feedback from anybody who's actually read the book. And what I tried to avoid was, you know, it's just a, a rehash of what Peter Taylor's done already. Um, and it's about much more than Operation Chiffon mm. of or, or the back channel. And, and what, what I tried to do, and it really only came to me after, after the event, it, it's looking at an arc from the early 70s when I began and the uh, astonishing Cheney Walk meeting and the ceasefire that lasted two days and then it broke down in lennon avenue and i was there and watched it watched it all happen from that from the darkness the darkest darkest days of the troubles which was the 1970s right through to bloody sunday and how how on earth does a democratic society get from there to the relative peace that good friday produced what's the process Mm -hmm. how do you resolve a violent conflict and end up with some kind of peace.
1: And what do you think is the process? And it's an interesting thing because your book is about personalities as well. Like it is, like the personalities, Duddy, uh, Michael Oatley, Robert, they are all the, the, these are the kind of enduring figures in the, in the Mm. book. And then you find yourself wondering like, well, is it, is this this history shaped by people or is it shaped by belief and and policy? And and events. And events. And obviously the events, and like the events are so, Grim and so many, you know, and, and the persistence to keep going, is extraordinary. But what do you think about that? Like, do you think without these personalities, like, and th- th- there would have been a Good Friday Agreement?
3: I, I take the view you just expressed that history, I've long believed, is made by people. Obviously, it's made by by events and circumstances and and the antecedents of that history, but in terms of the conflict in Northern Ireland and the, the arc from the 1970s through to Good, Friday to Good Friday Agreement is clearly, in my view, made by people, by extraordinary people on all sides. <coughs> Pardon me. From, you know, from, from Brendan Duddy and Michael Oakley through to, you know, Robert and Brendan again, but also through John Hume and Gerry Adams um, and t-shirts down here and British governments. I mean, John Major gave the go ahead for Operation Chiffon, although he didn't know it was called Operation Chiffon, I suspect. But he knew he was one of the few people outside of a very tight circle within M- MI5 who knew about Operation Chiffon and, and what was involved. And the key thing about Chiffon is that it had two aims one, to get the IRA to declare a ceasefire, and B, to get the IRA to engage in talks—that's very simply what it was about. But, that, and, but yeah, and ev- eventually, that was Good Friday, and Good Friday was the w- was the completion and the success of Operation Chief And, oh. and
1: that, but and that's where people were in 1972 as well. And then we had 1975 came along, and you know the ceasefire, and then McGuinness. Feeling that that ceasefire was a betrayal, yeah. Um, and then we had the bloody one of the bloodiest years yeah, and the sectarian absolutely. killing and all, mm. all. And then that led into, well, Mrs. Thatcher coming to power and then the hunger strike. So there was this yeah.
3: huge. Um, Those are events. Yeah, you know? these are the events, but, but made by <laughs> by individuals. You know, but
2: it seems to me. And what, what really tames with me throughout the book, and I think it's a marvellous document, it's not just the story of how the ceasefire was broken. This is the story of, really, this is the story of Ireland. It's the story of the north of Ireland. And I, I do say it's brilliantly written. But what tames with me is the sheer ordinariness of it all. You know, Bernadette Devlin, Bernadette Michalisky, the younger people would know her, as she famously said, if someone punches you in the face, you're going to punch them back. And the the way you describe the genesis of the, 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 the troubles just shows us the sheer ordinariness of it, you know, people who just get involved in, you know, then there's Bloody Sunday, then there's queues around the block to join the IRA, you know, and then I, I think you describe brilliantly the, the major catalysts, you know, uh, for me. Always it was the hunger strike. Mm, absolutely. Because yeah. there was a feeling in our community this is this is over now. This is over and worldwide now that there was worldwide focus. Sinn Fein saw through the election of t- two of the hunger strikers and then Owen McCarran. Um with huge yeah. votes that, hey, this this is the future. This is and I think you capture that brilliantly yeah. in the book. Well I maybe you would just talk a bit about the yeah. the cathartic effect yeah, of the yeah. hunger strikes.
3: When I came to write about the hunger strike, I thought, well, I've done this before in detail in in my previous books and, and my documentaries. But writing about the hunger strike in the context of this book, Operation Chiffon, was a different experience because... What I was trying to do was, was to trace how one event led to another and how those events were led by you know, remarkable individuals on, on, on all sides. And I ended up devoting a lot of pages to the hunger strike. And I thought, I have to do this because people, I want people to understand that the rise of Sinn Féin and the end of the IRA didn't come out of nowhere and the single most important event in that transitionary process was the hunger strike and because the hunger strike was also an opportunity for michael oatley and brendan duddy to use the back channel for a different purpose because it was about getting the british to understand what they had how far they had to go to get an agreement on the first hunger strike and that was effected by Michael Oakley and, and, and Brendan Duddy. And good, just going into into the detail of what what the hunger strikers went through, not just the Bobby Sands-led hunger strike, but the first hunger strike, which tends to get forgotten and written yeah. out. And I knew, yeah. you know, that, that was Brendan Hughes led by Brendan, and I got, I'd got to know Brendan really I mean, it's well. It's extraordinary. You know.
2: it, it, it just, um, like, again, the trust that people had in you I mean, uh, I'm just reading just a passage from the book, just to prompt you Mm. in relation to this, because it's, it's exactly where you are. I remember discussing, this is Peter writing, I remember discussing an offer at Stormont with the Northern Ireland press officer, that the Northern Ireland office would provide all the protesters with civilian type clothes from Marks and Spencer's. The press officer produced from his desk drawer an MS shirt wrapped in cellophane. when men are on hunger strike now; they're 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 going to die imminently. He told me it seemed a sensible compromise. I said I thought the prisoners would literally and metaphorically never wear it. Compromise was rejected. They wanted their old clothes, not Marks and substitutes provided by Her Majesty's government and the prison authorities. I
3: remember so, it vividly. I mean, you said and it just spoke, tell us, I mean it spoke volumes, and. And I think, I'm not absolutely sure, which is why I didn't name him. I think it was may have been David Gilliland, who was the um, legendary, legendary <laughs> Northern Ireland head of communications. And I knew David well, but he was tough to work with. And, uh, and I just couldn't believe that, that any Northern Ireland office official could ever imagine that the men on, it wasn't just the men on hunger strike, but those on on the protests, the, no, the no-wash protests would ever consider wearing a shirt, be it from Marks and Spencers wrapped in cellophane or anything else. It was a failure on the part of the British administration to understand what they were up against, which is why in the end they lost. You know, the hunger hunger strike was a short-term victory for Mrs Thatcher, but it was a long-term defeat, given what happened. But the hunger strike, you're absolutely right, and I'm glad to hear you confirm it, was absolutely central in these events and central to a reader's understanding of, uh, of what happened, what the dynamic was. But, but the,
1: the, the, it's it's one like it is the key and it is the pivotal one, as you say, for so many reasons. Also because it gets it gets Sinn Fein the 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 benefits of of, of electoral politics absolutely becomes yeah. clear to them. But the, I just want to talk about something before that. There is you mentioned as well about internment, and that was another strategic error, and it's something both of you. Uh, you know know about like I, like like that sort of sense of making these these decisions that actually fuel fuel the the anger fuel you know lead to recruitment like that is that is the sort of story of sort of 10 years of the troubles between sort of 72 and 82 isn't it well internment I, was massive
2: I mean, my yeah. father was interned francie broly you never heard of Francie Brawley, did you? No. See, no, no. Brawley never cracked under interrogation. <laughs> you talk about you talk about your but, source. But, not but the speaking. thing
1: was, on the <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: so we we, 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 we saw the sort of community mobilization with internment, you know. And I suppose nowadays, young people, if you if you tell them about internment, which isn't widely known at all. How long it was, was your father really in turn at, uh, for? years, you know, he was taken away sort of shortly after it began. And then uh, we got a knock on the door three or four years later to say, uh, Anne, you're to go and pick up Francie. You know, he was a very um, inscrutable man in his way. But the point was this, the community mobilized around that. And I was very young at the time. And it was it was a disaster, I think, from the point of view of trying to reach any any settlement because after internment people say like they're taking people away putting them in detention camps they're not charging them with anything they're not trying we don't know when they're coming home i mean my mother wrote weekly letters to the ministry and never got a single response i mean she had three young boys and uh but there was nothing like the hunger strike i mean i remember the atmosphere i mean i think there were a hundred thousand people maybe more at bobby sands funeral I remember kevin lynch's funeral in dungiven and the priest wouldn't let them keep the tricolour on the coffin going into the chapel. And it finished the, it finished the Catholic Church in Dungiven, you know, the atmosphere. I can remember something deep and emotional. Some switch had flicked and that was it. You know, the die was cast one way or the other. No matter what way it had to go, I think people said, even people who had, you know, fought against the violence and said, look, we're going the wrong path here. People said, well, fuck that. Fuck that. There's nothing else here now. And it was all or nothing. And I think that was probably the mood that, you know, that you describe very accurately in the book.
3: And it was unstoppable. I mean, that was that was the point. And it was partly the result of the, you know, the British failure to understand what the conflict was about and the nature of those involved in it, that they were, you know, ordinary young people and they they had good reason in their minds for doing... for for, for doing what they did.